Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Five Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monhan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. ControlUp, happy users, happy IT. And also brought to you by PolicyPack Software, now part of Netflix, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And of course, also brought to you by Liquidware, the innovator in adaptive workspace management solutions. If you enjoy the show each week, give these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. So this week, an event that has been predicted and anticipated for decades actually came to pass finally. That was the acquisition of Citrix. Now in the past, most have speculated that Microsoft might acquire them, or more recently the likes of Amazon and Google had their names thrown around. But it was actually a global investment firm named Vista Equity Partners and an affiliate of Elliott Investment Management called Evergreen Coast Capital Corporation. Elliott Investment Management have been invested in Citrix in the past too. Not long after the likes of the Register reported their involvement once again, it was revealed that the now former CEO David Henshaw would be stepping down as CEO. You can connect the dots for yourself there, or maybe I'm seeing things that are not actually there, <laughs> but other media outlets have also speculated that Elliot's involvement was one of the factors that led to David Henshaw stepping down. Also, as I've covered on the podcast in the past and the pretty recent past, Citrix had some pretty wide-reaching layoffs, with it reported that as many as 2,000 employees may have been let go. At the time, the anonymous form site The Layoff was filled with Citrix employees discussing the layoffs with some of them and even many media outlets pointing to the acquisition of Reich, a productivity platform, as the straw that broke the camel's back. At the time on the forum, some were discussing the layoffs of entire departments and development teams like those who worked on the micro apps. So perhaps these layoffs and the rumored layoffs of entire teams and departments and potentially meaning certain products and features are no longer being developed, you know, that could point to what has happened, which would be an acquisition. Now, as I said a couple of episodes ago, I'm not a big picture thinker. I attribute that to being an engineer for most of my career. It can be hard to see the forest from the trees when you're constantly down within the trees fighting fires. But someone who is definitely a big picture thinker is former FS Logic CEO Kevin Goodman, who I had the honor of witnessing do a session at CUGC about four years ago. So FS Logic sponsored a Kansas CUGC that I was also speaking at. He did this great thing when sponsoring. He would come to one of the user groups and he would say, hey, you know, FS Logics, we're the sponsor, and then ask everyone in the audience if they wanted to hear about FS Logics for 30 minutes, which was the time allotted to them as sponsor, or ask them, would you like the quick five-minute version of talking about FS Logics and 25 minutes of a session on something else entirely? Of course, everyone picked the five-minute version with another presentation thrown in. 
It turned out his session at that Kansas event was all about Citrix. He talked about where they were at at that time and what he thought would happen to the company in the future. I kid you not, but he mentioned that at the time, most people were speculating that Microsoft would buy them, but he said he thought that would not happen. So as we know in present day, point one for Kevin there. But then he went on to explain that Citrix would need to slim down the product offering and focus more on their core products. He also stated their licensing model and trying to drive customers from perpetual licensing to the cloud subscriptions would prove difficult. Score two for Kevin, I believe there. He then went on and explained further that such big changes that would be required could only really be possible if someone was going to take the company private. So point three for Kevin. Pretty incredible vision from Mr. Goodman there. I think you'll agree. And anyone who was in Kansas, I know at least Jerry and Gibson was there. I wonder if you all remember that session too, because it was the first thing I thought of when I saw the news of the acquisition. And I think what Kevin's vision was at that time is actually probably a pretty good run through of what did happen. You know, they needed to slim down and focus on their core products. They also saw the need that for Citrix to continue being viable and also to grow from strength to strength. They would need to be able to make some big changes, which when publicly traded may not go down too well with investors. So going private might have made the most sense there. So does this acquisition worry me personally? Not really. My only fears and thoughts are with my friends working for Citrix and those who got let go in recent months. Obviously an acquisition like this, and in particular for a company such as Citrix that has been operating under their own guise for so long, can be quite disrupting and make employees understandably nervous. But from a customer standpoint and from an IT professional standpoint, if going private allows them to adjust the core offering and the licensing without upsetting Wall Street, then this could be a good thing for Citrix customers and potentially everyone in end-user computing since increased competition really is good for everyone. It drives innovation all around and it also drives more competitive pricing. So best of luck to all my friends working at Citrix and best of luck to Citrix and the investors who have now taken them private. I wish only good things because like I said, I think we all benefit from their success. Now sticking with Citrix just for a moment, but the awesome Kurt Simpson, who you should follow on Twitter, it's at KurtSimp88. Well, Kurt reached out to me with the story that he felt may be important to the community. And that was that he was seeing that Citrix's EPA security feature appeared to have major problems on the latest version 98 of Google Chrome. And not just Chrome either, but Edge too, so other Chromium-based browsers were having problems too. He told me that Firefox seemed to work without issue, but essentially the warning would pop up that the EPA would need to do its check, but it would not process, or in some cases, went through to the applications, applications and resources would not launch. Now, since Kurt reached out to me, Citrix have actually gone ahead and published an article, CTX 339975, complete with screenshots where they elaborate on some workarounds. So if you or your users are experiencing this and you're using Windows, there is a registry key that you can set. 
to allow it to function again with Chrome. And I'll share that with this episode. And if you're listening to the audio only version, you can find a screenshot with the registry on the YouTube edition, or alternatively, just go to fivebytespodcast.com and go to reference links under episode 215. There's also a workaround provided for those using Chrome on Mac OS. As you might expect, that one's a little more involved because there's no registry. But Citrix also do throw in the caveat, suggesting that on Windows, you can use Edge or Firefox as an alternative, though I believe Kurt saw that um, the same issues existed in Edge, so I'm not too sure about that. Um, on Mac OS, you can use Safari or Firefox. So on the podcast in the past, I talked about a stealth Chrome change that resulted in problems for enterprise customers. In this instance, it appears a browser update has caused a change to break this feature. So it was an actual like updated version. And that is a challenge with Chrome and just the way they have very aggressive update frequency. And it's perhaps a reason to reconsider having auto updates and actually going back to managing the browser and updating it yourself. Unfortunately, and this is just my opinion, might not be a popular opinion, but this is one of the falling down points for Chrome in the enterprise. They've been doing better at providing things like group policy templates and obviously that awful MSI that I talk about quite often uh, in my sessions, but enabling features and uh, doing things in the background stealthily even without doing a formal update to the uh, package or to the application and other wide sweeping changes with seemingly very little regard for enterprise customers and how it affects them doesn't give me the warm and fuzzies about Chrome in the enterprise. Again, that's just my opinion. The UK and Ireland have had a difficult week this week to put things mildly. There is a lot of political unrest. And as you know, (laughs) this is not a political podcast, but things went from bad to worse for the UK and Ireland this week with the revelation that KP snacks have been hit by ransomware. KP make various crisps, including... Hula Hoops, Knickknacks, Butterkist, Skips, and most importantly for me, McCoys. In a statement from a spokesperson, KP addressed the attack by saying, quote, On Friday, 28th of January, we became aware that we were unfortunately victims of a ransomware incident. As soon as we became aware of the incident, we enacted our cybersecurity response plan and engaged a leading forensic information technology firm and legal counsel to assist in our investigation. Our internal IT teams continue to work with third-party experts to assess the situation. We have been continuing to keep our colleagues, customers, and suppliers informed of any developments and apologize for any disruption this may have caused." End quote. According to Graham McLulley, it is not clear if KP Snacks is negotiating with its extortionists or not. Better Retailing, which broke the news of the cyber attack, says that wholesaler Nisa warned partnered stores on February 1st to expect supply issues on base stock and promotions until further notice, warning that service could be affected until the end of March at the earliest. Oh boy. So, with that grim news, as I said, for UK and Ireland, things got worse this week. But with that grim news, I will fight all of you for the remaining salt and vinegar stock. Stay out of my way. Oddly, a short while ago, I covered a story about Walker's crisps in the UK being in short supply due to a botched SAP upgrade. So this isn't even the first crisp supply issue the UK has experienced within the last few months. Tough, tough times. 
Silicon Republic reported this week that the Belgian Data Protection Authorities found that IAB Europe's consent framework infringes the GDPR by failing to ensure personal data are kept secure and confidential and properly request consent. This consent framework is widely used, including by some very large vendors as part of their GDPR compliance measures. I mean, if you've used websites in the last few years, I'm sure you're familiar with these consent pop-ups. And this one was being used pretty widely. The Belgian data protection authorities also called out the system for lack of transparency around what happens to people's data. To make matters worse, authorities found that IAB Europe was aware of risks linked to non-compliance and chose to be negligent. The report goes on to suggest the authorities suggested TCF supports a system posing great risks to the fundamental rights and freedoms of the data subjects. In particular, in view of the large scale of personal data involved, the profiling activities, the prediction of behavior, and the ensuing surveillance of the data subjects. Dr. Johnny Ryan, one of the leading complainants in the case and senior fellow at ICCL, said that the fight against the malpractices of IAB Europe has been a long battle. Today's decisions freeze hundreds of millions of Europeans from consent spam and the deeper hazard that their most intimate online activities will be passed around by thousands of companies, Dr. Ryan went on to say. Man, those consent pop-ups are a real nuisance. I know it's been reported pretty widely that in some instances they're not even required. It's just people are, you know, CYA and paranoid that they should just have it there for the sake of it, just in case. Interesting to see a story about them. In kind of sad news this week, the VMware vSphere team shared that the vCenter converter tool is now unavailable for download. In a statement, they said that this is a precautionary measure to protect our customers from using legacy technology that does not comply with VMware's high standards for security and stability. And they went on to apologize for any inconvenience this may have caused. The last release of vCenter Converter occurred in May 2018, and its support officially ended in December 2019. I love the product, and I've used it many times in the past. They go on to say that work on a renewed version of the vCenter Converter is already in progress. And although they cannot commit to any specific timelines for its release, the updated tool will meet their high standards for security and stability, providing enhanced functionality and supporting the latest technologies available in vSphere virtual machines. So I'm looking forward to seeing that new one. As I said, I really liked the old one. Thursday was a rough morning for some 365 administrators as the 365 admin portal and portal.office.com became unavailable in several different regions. Now the first status update didn't come until about 9.30 a.m. GMT I believe from Microsoft, but in actual fact I believe the first indication I had of a problem was at 8.51 a.m. And this was thanks to the fact that I used Scout B's by control up for doing proactive monitoring and performing synthetic tests of all of my important SaaS applications, published applications and desktops, and other network resources. And it just so happens that since I use Office 365 every single day, 
I have scout bees performing synthetic tests of Office 365 every five minutes. So I was able to see very quickly that there were issues loading the Office 365 portal and I could see it progress throughout the morning. So it appeared to occur initially within the Nordics, the UK and EU as I was testing from cloud locations or cloud hives located in those regions. And it went on to also affect South Africa and South India too. And my findings were confirmed when Microsoft issued a status update suggesting that the impact was specific to users hosted in Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Missed Asia there, I think. <laughs> I'll share a video with this episode, but I went through scalpies and what the data was showing me and what I could see. I could see sometimes the site wasn't resolving at all. Sometimes it was throwing a 503 error. I could see via map view that there was no problem in the United States. I also went on to my VPN connected to the US and verified to show that what Scoutbees was telling me was accurate. It indeed was working from the US when I was connected to the US, but was not working from Ireland when I was connecting from Ireland. Now they said that the end time for when the issue was resolved was 3.50 p.m. And the preliminary root cause at the time of this recording was an issue within caching infrastructure resulted in the impact. The current cause of impact with the caching infrastructure is under investigation and Microsoft will provide additional information within the post-incident report. Which I actually know how that feels because I had a similar problem with my website where the caching got messed up and performance started to really crawl from certain locations. I believe even like flushing the cache didn't help. I had to like completely disable and reconfigure the Cloudflare uh, CDN caching again. So it'll be interesting to see what happened in this instance. Now, I'm not sure how many enterprises use Ubiquiti network appliances, but I know it is very popular with home labbers. And unfortunately, a threat actor is hitting these appliances with Log4Shell exploits. The record media reports that attackers took over unified devices and ran malicious PowerShell code that later downloaded and installed a version of the Cobalt Strike beacon backdoor. Researchers noted that this malware communicated with a command and control server that was previously seen attacking SolarWinds ServeU servers before the Log4Shell attacks. Now, a public exploit for this was disclosed back in December, but the first attacks were detected in the wild only last Friday. I know it kind of sucks because it could cause problems, but if you don't have your auto updates enabled on your access points and on your switches or other network appliances, it's a good idea to enable that. So this next story is probably more important to consumers and retail IT shops, but Forbes reported this week on Timur Yunusov, a Russian cybersecurity researcher who has demonstrated his ability to drain a Forbes reporter's bank account via their phone's wallet or payment app. In fact, in doing so, he sent the reporter's bank account into its overdraft. Now, Timur gave the money back as it was just a demonstration, but the report suggests this was also possible on Samsung phones, but was a little more complicated to pull off. It reads like Samsung may have reacted to the flaw. The hack only works where Visa cards are the default card for the mobile transport payments system. 
An Apple spokesperson responded to this with, quote, This is a concern with the Visa system, but Visa does not believe this kind of fraud is likely to take place in the real world given the multiple layers of security in place. In the unlikely event that an unauthorized payment does occur, Visa has made it clear that their cardholders are protected by Visa's zero liability policy. So that's good. And a Visa spokesperson added, quote, Visa cards connected to mobile wallets with transit features are secure and cardholders should continue to use them with confidence. Variations of contactless fraud schemes have been studied in laboratory settings for more than a decade and have proved to be impractical to execute at scale in the real world. Multiple layers of security are used to protect payments and consumers benefit from Visa's zero liability guarantee. Visa takes all security threats seriously and continuously evolves its payment security capabilities to protect cardholders from the latest real-world threats, end quote. Samsung, for their part, have yet to respond to Forbes. So kind of reading between the lines, it seems like, yeah, this could potentially happen. I would imagine, obviously, the biggest barrier to this would be that the attackers would need access to the physical phone which is obviously not outside the realms of possibility, uh, but they would not be able to do this on a very large scale. So Visa are saying, hey, you know, you could be confident because we'll make sure that you're taken care of. I don't know if that gives me all that much confidence though, because you know, if they drain your entire bank account via some wild debit payment, how long would it take to clear up between Visa and the bank? Sure, they might not be doing it widespread, but what if they do it to me? That's going to suck for me. So, so definitely still some concern. If you do have Visa as your default payment, if you have a MasterCard, maybe put that in place since this only affects Visa when set as a default payment method. Microsoft have launched a tool to help you migrate automatically from Azure Virtual Desktop Classic to the newer Azure Resource Manager. It is definitely worth the move. If you were an early adopter and are still on Classic, now would be a great time to switch. VentureBeat featured a story about DeepMind, the AI backed by Google parent company Alphabet, who claimed to have a solution that can take natural language commands and turn them into code. It is claimed what they have developed is a system that can write competition-level code. In programming competitions hosted on CodeForces, a platform for programming contests, DeepMind claims that AlphaCode, which is the name of the solution, achieved an average ranking within the top 54.3% across 10 recent contests with more than 5,000 participants each. DeepMind principal research scientist Oriel Vinyals says it's the first time that a computer system has achieved such a competitive level in all programming competitions. How amazing is that, eh? I'm going to try to not go too long on this next story, but Wired.com featured an amazing article this week detailing how North Korea's internet was taken down and they suspected a foreign government being the culprit in taking it down in response to missile launches from them, but in reality, it was taken down by a single security researcher with the handle P4X, who got hacked by the North Koreans himself as they were trying to hack security researchers and steal their hacking tools. 
P4X says he found numerous known but unpatched vulnerabilities in North Korean systems that have allowed him to single-handedly launch denial-of-service attacks on the servers and routers that the country's few internet-connected networks depend on. For the most part, he declined to publicly reveal those vulnerabilities, which he argues would help the North Korean government defend against his attacks. But he named as an example a known bug in the web server software in Ginix that mishandles certain HTTP headers, allowing the servers that run the software to be overwhelmed and knocked offline. He also alluded to finding ancient versions of the web server software Apache. Definitely read the full article for yourself and I'll share that with this episode, which once again is episode 215 and you'll find that on 5bytespodcast.com and our reference links for this episode. One final news story, Microsoft have now published their very own table highlighting the differences between Azure Virtual Desktop and Windows 365. So if you're trying to understand the differences, check out this comparison table. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. I covered a very worrying security issue with Teams that Microsoft had said was not going to be fixed on an episode last year. Well, Rue Campbell posted a good tip in response to this. Disable the ability for those outside of your organization to send messages. Seems like good advice. And not just because of that security concern, but other security concerns too. Is it a good idea in an enterprise teams to allow people from outside to message in? Probably not. The awesome Tim Mangan posted a blog where he goes into the fact that context menus can now work in MSIX, but with a but. There is a qualifier to that. It reads like not all context menus for every app will work when you try to package them. And Tim goes into this and more about the context menus. I won't give away the contents of the post on this podcast, but I suggest anyone interested in MSIX and just packaging in general to check it out. And sticking with Tim for this next one, he has now published the latest version of the MSIX report card for January 2022. Check out this year's report card and the previous report cards to get a feel for how MSIX is progressing as a product. Kendall Roden blogged about Azure Container Apps virtual network integration. So, you know, to work with containers across a shared network, check this one out. Hacking article on Twitter shared a really nice infographic on the consumer authentication strength maturity model. So, as you might expect, at the top in terms of strength would be passwordless. But there's also other ones in there like password managers and more. And you can kind of see on a sliding scale which ones are the most secure. Now, obviously, layering in some of them together provides even greater security, as the graphic suggests. David Ball shared a blog post that he published recently on deploying Linux desktops and applications with Amazon AppStream 2.0, which I'm always interested in deploying Linux applications like that because I think for certain things like browsers, that would be really interesting. And finally this week, I encountered a problem with my Microsoft Endpoint Manager no longer deploying applications for me. Honestly, as part of the troubleshooting this, it exposed the level of my ongoing frustration with how slow it can be when deploying applications because I reset my Windows 365 Cloud PC desktop and re-enrolled but the apps didn't deploy 
and me being used to it taking a while, I left it just like that for over 30 minutes, came back hoping that the apps would be there, but the apps hadn't installed. So I realized that I just wasted 30 minutes, but there was a problem and now I had to troubleshoot that problem. And it turned out that the issue was that my MDM authority within MEM switched to Office 365 from Intune. From what I could see, my E5 account that I used for setting the MDM authority to Intune still had 101 days left, but nevertheless, it changed anyway. So I set it back again because I did have my E5 still, but then within 10 minutes, it had switched back to Office 365 again. So I ended up scrapping my E5 account and resubscribing, and sure enough, then the account stuck, or rather the MDM authority stuck, and it stayed on Intune rather than Office 365 for the MDM authority. But then it took another 30 minutes until my apps installed again. So just so much time wasted. From doing some Googling on the issue, I found this issue is not unique to me, so you may encounter it someday too. I'm thinking that it might be a good idea to set the MDM authority to Intune with a standalone single purpose account that only has an E5 subscription. That way it won't default back to a different subscription that account has. Perhaps, that's just a guess. And one last tip for anyone who might be thinking of doing a podcast. You know, sometimes I leave the blog articles that I'm referring to open as I'm recording the audio. Uh, but usually I don't. I just write down a script and read from a script in like notepad or um, in a single Word document or something like that. But today I was like, hey, you know, I'll just leave all the browser windows open or all the browser tabs open and I'll read from there and just kind of go it alone or do it a little bit differently and just go off what I'm seeing. That was a mistake. <laughs> so far, this seems like it might be the long steps of the podcast that I've done, but probably not because I'm going to have to do an awful lot of editing because having that many browser tabs open made my machine span go crazy. So <laughs> there's been a lot of stopping. So I'm afraid the audio quality may not be great this week because I was fighting against my machine's fan. I've learned from it. I'll do better next week. I was trying to take a shortcut and it didn't work out. But regardless, that's it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening.